0: What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. Together with its customers, AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy to create a 100% carbon-free world. AES partners with organizations, no matter where they're at in their energy journey, to co-create the greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. AES's team of more than 500 clean energy innovators in the U.S. find solutions that are both economically viable and environmentally friendly. AES is also walking the walk to achieve net zero carbon emissions from electricity sales by 2040. Learn more about how AES can empower you to achieve your energy goals and create the energy future we all need at AES.com. What It Takes is also brought to you by DLA Piper, a full-service global law firm that works with leading technology companies and their investors to meet all their legal needs. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper has lawyers in 40 countries across the Americas, Middle East, Africa, and Asia Pacific, wherever you're doing business. DLA Piper delivers value to its clients. It helps startups go from garage to global and it helps established technology companies to grow smartly. You can subscribe to DLA Piper's thought leadership events and publications at DLAPiper.com.
1: I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero-carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Dan Yates, the co-founder and former CEO of Opower. Opower was based on a simple premise, send paper mailers to utility customers comparing their electricity use to their neighbors. And if people saw that they were doing poorly, they'd make changes and it worked. Over time, Opower Inc. deals with the world's biggest power companies and started processing vast amounts of smart meter data, making it arguably the biggest energy efficiency success story in business. The company went public in 2014 and sold to Oracle in 2016. The business model was based on cutting-edge behavioral science, but it wasn't always clear how it would play out. In this interview, I spoke with Dan about the science behind the idea, how Opower evolved and expanded, and why the company eventually sold to Oracle. This conversation was recorded in front of a live remote audience in the summer of 2020. I'm thrilled to be here today with Dan Yates, co-founder and former CEO of the energy data company Opower, who is joining us from Washington, D.C. Hello, Dan, and welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Emily. Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. Um, I know we asked you to turn off your A.C. because of the noise, but then we were afraid it was going to get really hot, so you were going to pre-cool your house. So I'm curious, are you freezing? Are you sweating? What's, what's your state right now?
2: So it's cold. It's late enough uh, that it's cool enough. So all all of the complexity has been avoided.
1: <laughs> good, good. Um, so Dan, you founded Opower in two thousand and seven. You led the company through a billion dollar IPO in twenty fourteen and a five hundred and thirty two million dollar sale to Oracle in two thousand and sixteen. Under your tenure, Opower saved customers more than 13 terawatt hours of energy, but your journey obviously begins long before billion-dollar IPOs. You grew up in Washington and later San Diego. Your dad was in the Air Force, and when he retired from the service, he went into defense contracting, working on spy satellites. Your mom is Israeli-American with a doctorate in education and taught Hebrew in the synagogue where you had your bar mitzvah. Uh, you, like all previous What It Takes guests, self-identified as a nerd in school. So I'm curious, what was your, what were your early years like and what were you like as a kid?
2: I was a nerd. I grew up mostly in San Diego. A lot of playing outside, riding bikes in the canyons with my friends. Uh, definitely went through my um, Dungeons and Dragons phase in middle school. Uh, then slowly awakened to the limitations of those choices for the other aspects of my life. And became aware of girls, and you know, had a normal childhood. <laughs> Did those feel it's, mutually exclusive? Definitely, in my in my particular experience, they were. Um, I was an only child, uh, so always kicked out of the house on Saturday mornings by my mom, who was eager to make sure that I was hanging out with other kids. Spent a lot of time outside playing with friends, and uh, I had a I had a very lucky to have great parents, and you know, a very supportive and calm and politics free childhood.
1: Um, mm-hmm, nice. Um, I know you went to Harvard where you studied computer science and you participated in the Entrepreneur's Club in 1996. Uh, you said you you had not remembered this, but you did tell uh, Harvard Crimson, a, a reporter there, that you intended to start a software company. So I'm curious, what was your college experience like and what gave you the vision to start a company, especially right out of college?
2: Yeah, it's so funny. I didn't remember that. And I was not, you know, I was not one of these super entrepreneur kids who like was selling gumdrops under the table in elementary school, you know, and trying to finagle That's something. What I, was doing. <laughs> I, I was, I, you know, I was like totally kind of by the book, literally, you know, a hardworking student. Um, and then my cousin, who's about four years older than me, he la- he graduated college and decided to start a company, and that was the first time it it occurred to me. And it was '97. Things were or 96, things were booming already in Silicon Valley. So it was a it was a consensus decision uh, as a computer scientist. So it wasn't a, a crazy stretch. Um, but that's when I started thinking about starting companies.
1: You worked with your cousin for a while, and eventually you co-founded your own company, Edusoft, one of the world's first enterprise SaaS education platforms that ultimately transformed education testing. You served as CEO for four years, during which Edusoft was acquired for $40 million in 2003. Um, what inspired you to start Edusoft and how were you able to successfully launch it and then sell it in your early 20s?
2: So I, uh, you know, I was never a good employee. That was part of what was, or, you know, worker was part of what made me into an entrepreneur. I got fired from most of the jobs I had in high school. I was, worked at The Gap. I worked as a host and it wasn't, I was I wasn't um, disobedient. I was just spaced out. So I graduated college. We decided to start a company with this very close friend of mine who I was just texting with before this, um, uh, Jay Kimmelman. And he and I helped my cousin's good friend uh, get started with a different company for about a little less than a year as a kind of a business school for us because we really knew nothing. And we knew we knew we knew nothing, so we at least had that. So we got some knowledge in that year. We at least had a picture of what a startup looked like. Um, And then we uh, decided to start our own company. And in that course of even just a year of grinding it out, starting up a business, I realized how much work it is and didn't, and, uh, and didn't want to take the risk of just working all the way through my twenties and having it not work, not making money and then feel like I wasted all that time. So to me, it became almost a, a matter of, Downside protection that I realized I wanted to become mission driven. I wanted, I was like, this has to be bigger than just money because it's not enough to sustain me to to make this level of sacrifice. And so it was in that context that Jay and I sort of talking about where to focus. And we both have backgrounds, personal family backgrounds in education. Both of our moms are teachers. We both felt really changed by our experiences at Harvard. We were roommates. And so that's how we decided to focus on education.
1: So after you sold EduSoft, you actually, how old were you when you sold the company?
2: uh 20 just turned 25.
1: So you took some time off before founding O Power and during this time you and your then girlfriend, now wife, drove the entire Pan-American Highway from the Arctic Circle to Tierra del Fuego. What inspired you to take the trip and how did it influence what you decided to do next?
2: Yeah, so so Ed you ended up being a a a success uh you know, at a smaller scale um and I was feeling really like ahead of the ball, you know, I was 25 and I'd sold my company and I felt like the world was my oyster. And, and I talked my girlfriend to take into taking this year and a half off, taking this trip. And we really just, we wanted to do, we wanted to go and have a great adventure. And I was, I had an, I had a hunch that if it wasn't directed, if there was no goal or orientation that it could feel a little, uh, disorienting and, uh, and aimless, so I was looking for something to tie it all together, and I had heard about these trips, and I thought this was just a great, what a great idea because it's a framework to go on an amazing trip, but the framework is so loose because essentially the only framework is just when you're done with where you are, head south, uh, and otherwise do whatever you want. So I talked her into this. Uh, she doesn't like driving as much as I do. I literally drove 99% of the miles that we traveled. <laughs> um uh, and we had a phenomenal time, and that was the origin of it. And then, in the end, you know, looking back, what it the, the where it really factors, aside from being a, a trip, a amazing experience in its own right, is it's what turned me into an environmentalist. But that was not that was not the plan. That was that was a hmm. sort of a, the an outcome of it.
1: How did that become the outcome?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the state of the world is really what enabled the outcome, and my uh, I just became aware of it. So, I had this naive, more naive sense that there were wild lands ahead of us and after you drive through the whole Americas you realize that actually the most of the you know you've got well what is decreasingly wild the Amazon and otherwise the biggest stretches of wild lands are largely in North America Uh, and and everything's obviously mapped out Uh, and we listened in parallel to this as we drove we listened to Jared Book's collapse um, on first generation iPod with the hard drive. Uh, (laughs) This is Jared Diamond's book. Yeah, and that, that that book talks about ecological collapse and the history of it happening across a whole host of civilizations, and it was just, it was the perfect book to to open our eyes. And I always I describe on this trip, it felt like the third party on the on the journey was the land, because mm-hmm. we were looking out the window and and just and taking it in. So mm-hmm. that's what that's what got me.
1: Mm-hmm. Is there any image that stands out in your mind of just something that you saw that you feel like will always stay with you?
2: Yeah, there was actually in really stark we were driving across the center of guatemala um and it was this huge prairie or you know plains just cows grazing moist you know like wet but but grass and then there was this rock promontory it was like kind of like a 100 foot tall it was like it was almost like a humongous three acre rock had just been placed in the middle of this plains with sheer cliffs and on top of it, it was flat. And on top, it was just covered in the most dense rainforest you could picture. And it suddenly occurred to both of us that this entire field from horizon to horizon had been rainforest. Wow. And Guatemala is 97% deforested. And that is, Jeez. you know, that is the fact. That's the, you know, that's the t- statistic. But then we s- seeing it there mm-hmm. really, it's un- it was unforgettable. And that, it was those moments, and you're reading the book, and you're like, oh, this is, mm-hmm. the, we've got to change what we're doing.
1: yeah. yeah. From June to October of 2007, you had four major life events. You moved from San Francisco (laughs) to D.C., you turned 30, you got married, and you founded Opower. The origin of Opower involves a behavioral scientist, your college classmate, Alex Lasky, and PG&E's antiquated billing system. How did all four of these things come together to lead to the founding of Opower? Um, And what was it like having all of these things happening at the same time?
2: (laughs) It was very hectic. Uh, I don't recommend trying to tie that many things together all at once. It wasn't a plan, but it happened. But the way, the the founding story of of Opower was I, I came back, Toby and I, my wife and I came back from this trip, but I moved back to San Francisco and both started looking into what to do next. And she had just finished her PhD in international history and was looking to get into the development or international aid world and it surprisingly I was living in San Francisco for 9 8 years at the time you know I knew a lot of people and we tried to find opportunities there and there really actually isn't much in San Francisco on, in that domain so DC was was pulling and I we had a, you know I was looking to support her at that moment to make a change for her career Um, But so Alex and I got working on this. I started looking at a bunch of different clean tech ideas and he and I started to partner together. He had just come off of running a political campaign and we started looking into this idea, into a number of ideas. And I had really out of the blue, i got my PG&E bill and the PG&E bill now is good. And in no small part, I think Opower plays a role in that because it's a big customer of Opower's. But Opinion uh, itself has done a lot to improve their bill, but at the time it was atrocious. It was almost you couldn't even tell how much you owed. I won't go. I could. I could. I could regale you with the details, but suffice to say, I'm hoping this thing it's it's a garbage. And I'm thinking there's a billion utility bills that go out a year. You get twelve, you know, hundreds plus million homes twelve times a year. Isn't this the biggest marketing opportunity to communicate to people about energy savings? And I don't even know how much I owe, let alone if I'm using a lot or a little. And I had this naive idea. I'd love to see how my energy use compares to my neighbors—not an individual neighbor, but just give me an aggregate sense. Am I using above average, below average? Then I could get a benchmark if I should, if I have an opportunity to save. And so I had—I was talking with this about this idea with a bunch of, and amongst a bunch of others—and I happened to have a breakfast with Ria Sue, who was um, later went on to run NRDC and being the Obama administration very successful, and she was running Hewlett Foundation's uh, en- en- environmental. Practice for forgiving, and she had just funded this guy. I tell her about this idea, and her eyes go wide, and she's like, "I just funded this guy, Robert Cialdini, this famous behavioral psychologist, and he's just conducted a study that demonstrably proves if you compare people to their neighbors, they change their energy behavior. So that's what got us started." Alex, I came back to Alex, I'm like, "This is thing. This stupid idea I have is maybe actually a real idea." And then we started to look into it, and then you know, it it's, it continues from there. Are you a competitive person? Sure.
1: <laughs> Just that instinct of like, I want to know how my neighbors are doing and am I better? I
2: mean, it works. Uh, that's funny. So, you know, it's, it's, that it, was like, I wasn't sure why you were asking. Yeah. So, you know, Professor Cialdini has, has talks a lot about this in, in depth and with more subtlety than than I will, but it's not competent. So there, there's like people often, the sort of the nastier versions of the instinct is competition or guilt, you know, like you are going to shame you into changing mm-hmm. your and really those are both kind of manifestations of an underlying instinct which is we're very deeply programmed to pursue to seek social proof which is just mm-hmm. we're a herd animal you know we or you know we're a social animal we're not actually a herd animal but so <laughs> we we really take sig- strong cues from norms and so when you get a norm that tells you you're using 30% more than average and if you feel the critical thing is you have to feel an affinity towards your norm group, so you have to believe you are like your neighbors if you' moved into a neighborhood surrounded by monks living with a single light bulb and you know <laughs> no appliances you will care you won't care about your neighbor comparison but if you feel like they're similar then you that's very it's very powerful information because we don't have time to actually do ground level bottom up analysis of everything
1: makes sense makes sense I know you signed OPower's first contract with Smud, which is Sacramento's utility in 2007, so the same year that you started. But when you signed that contract, you literally did not have a single line of code written, and I think a lot of people listening know how hard it is to land a utility customer, let alone if you don't have any code. So, how did you do that? And and what was the early OPower product like once you actually did write some code?
2: Yeah. Well, the, so the- the the single biggest piece of magic we had was my co-founder Alex, who is truly unparalleled in his ability to to move move something like OPower forward in terms of finding the right people to talk to and, and and getting their attention and getting us, you know, getting us in. That was the that was the magic. And then the other the other essential piece is that we had a we we did all the work to really put together a product that had very crisp product market fit within the utility sector, and the utility sector is very weird. So they don't just buy things to. It's not like you know you think you go to a business, they're going to buy something that's going to improve their bottom line. Like that, it's totally different physics in the utility industry. So, largely, to cut it short, there's a huge multi-billion-dollar segment of the utility industry that pays for energy efficiency programs, and the math, the physics there is. I will buy things if they can help consumers save energy cost effectively. And so if you can deliver a program that, that works, that reduces energy use, and it's demonstrable, it's measurable, and it's cheap, they'll buy it. And so we did all the work to package this up. And the critical piece was uh, that we pitched the program to be implemented as a clinical trial. So we would do a randomized testing control, and the utility could directly measure the impact of our communications on reducing usage. And then when you had that, it fit into their model. And then Alex did all of his magic and found us the right people. And then we got our sale. And then we wrote the code really fast.
1: <laughs>
2: how, how, how quickly? I mean, we had like five months to launch and we started like a week after we signed. So
1: <laughs> how, big, how big was that first contract?
2: So uh, utility numbers are crazy. That contract was almost $400,000. So, and that was your very first contract. And that was one year. Yeah. Wow. Now we signed wow. smaller contracts, but then later in Opower's, you know, and Opower today under Oracle has hundred plus million dollar contracts. Wow. Wow. So it's a, it becomes a different beast in that industry.
1: Yep. So I know you personally put in the first $50,000 to start Opower before closing your first round of $1.5 million in August of 2007. Um, And that round, that $1.5 million round, included a check from an early investor in your last company, Edusoft. And so I'm curious, at the time, were you and Alex and whoever else was on the team at the time, were you able to, to pay yourselves? Were you just living off savings? And then, what did your work environment look like? You know, the, uh, we all have our stories of where our companies started and what they looked like, but what did that look like for you?
2: Yeah, so we were like on. I was paying my own way before, until we raised the A, and I base we we always sort of kept on sl- like slave wages as long as we could. Alex and my salary wasn't normal until we went public. Really, I mean, we were always there was no separation and identity between us and the company. Like the the equity felt like our bones or our blood, you know, it was like, we, we <laughs> held on to it over everything. So uh, I mean, we were, we were generous with our employees, but it was like, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it, it was, we f- we really managed, we, we tried to do everything we can to, to preserve it. And we paying ourselves was not the priority. Uh, at the very beginning, I, mean, I had the luxury of having made money, um, uh, made some money at, at Edusoft. So I was able to just I didn't take any salary. We Alex took like a subsistence salary and then that got paid back out of the out of the A. We were Our offices were on um, on Utah Street in Petrero Hill. and we weren't we wasn't really an office. It was the building that had it had at various times EduSoft, Wedding Channel, Flickster, Eventbrite was originally there. Uh, the guy who founded Zynga, which was the, his previous company, Mob Squad, I think, or Mob Mob Shop. It's a prolific. The building was like prolific in spitting out startups. Anyway, the top floor was like a free for all, and we basically paid rent for a couch and a, and a and a standing desk. And we tried to get away without paying rent for <laughs> for a month, and then the landlord who knew me came in and was like, "Dan, what are you doing?" It's Gary Gomez. <laughs> how like, much I, how much was rent? Oh, it was like f- I don't know 450 a month or something. I mean, it was uh-huh. negligible.
1: <laughs> uh, tell me if these numbers are correct. You raised a 16 million Series B? Is that right?
2: 16. Yeah.
1: 16. Yep. 116. And then uh, that was in December of 2000.
2: We raised the A in 07 and then we raised the B in 08. Gotcha.
1: And then twelve months after that, you raised a thirty-two million Series C.
2: It was two years later in twenty ten. Two
1: gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. What did yeah. fundraising look like for you? And then what advice? What advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are fundraising now?
2: Yeah, uh, we had great success with fundraising. We had competitive bids and you know multiple term sheets in, in both of those big rounds as well as in the A. I guess I'd say my advice. I don't, I don't have much else to say about that directly, I'd say my advice in fundraising more broadly, I often give a couple tips. One is the one thing you can control is your timeline. So I worked very hard to um, align my conversations with multiple interested investors so that they would be coincident. So if we got a term sheet or more than one term sheet, we would get them in parallel and we could create some competitive bidding environment. We could become a price maker instead of a price taker. And then uh, the second thing I always say uh, is, you have to when you're pitching in a sales setting. It doesn't matter if you say something wrong; you're just trying to say something right, and then the buyer will say, "Oh, that's interesting. I want that." And in an, in an investor setting, that's just not the case. Um, if you say something wrong, a it may reveal something bad about your company because um, they aren't they ha- everything has to add up, and b it may reveal or at least reveal create the perception in the investor that you don't fully understand the company. And so you're in invest in an investor setting, it's as much that you're trying to create confidence in yourself, you know, giving build building with the investor the sense that you really understand your business. So those are the two things I I typically advise people on.
1: I know you mentioned you met Opower's co-founder and former president, Alex Lasky, during your freshman year at Harvard, and then later you reconnected with him in San Francisco. What was your relationship like in college? And then what did your relationship look like at
2: Opower? So we met the very first like day of college at the Ice Cream Social. Um, Alex, Alex really <laughs> likes too. to tell that story. Um, I, I don't remember it as well as he does. <laughs> He said, "I apparently looked. I looked <laughs> weird to him. I had my hair parted in the middle, which was like a '90s San Diego. I had hair then.
1: Uh, at the let's time, let's be
2: honest. That's the, the yeah, real amazing was... thing is there was anything to part." <laughs> um, and uh, and then we, we, yeah, we we were friends all through college, uh, and had at different points like hung out more or less. But we weren't. We just we were always sort of we had we had other friends we spent more time with. Um, we liked each other there. Whenever we, whenever we were together, and then it was actually after college in San Francisco. Four of us—he, he and his wife, and and me and and Toby—the four of us really clicked as a group of four, and just kind of fell in love with each other, and then spent a ton of time together. And then it was in that setting that he and I started talking about business.
1: And then, what did that relationship look like in O'Power?
2: That was great. I mean, we we worked super hard uh, and super well together and we had a great division of labor
1: what was the division
2: he was like the outside guy I was CEO he was president he was constantly forging ahead breaking new ground outside of the company with you know leading the company outside meeting new customers he brought us all over the the U.S. first and then he he opened up the doors all over the, the globe closed sales in Sweden and Japan and almost in Middle East but didn't never got that but you know all over the all over the world and then I was like the I was the operator who, you know, got all the kept the trains running and, and also did all the and, and ran the board and, and, you know, worked with the investors. He also was he's a very soulful guy and he was a huge part of the culture in the company. He said he really helped set the tone inside the company with all the employees and he was is beloved.
1: It's very it's a great addition. So, yeah, all of this culminating in 2010 to then-President Barack Obama visiting Opower's Arlington, Virginia location after having just announced a $2.3 billion program for tax credits for clean energy jobs. And he touted Opower as an economic recovery success story uh, and a great emblem of clean energy jobs. During Obama's visit, uh, he said that the company's growth is a model for what we want to see all over the country. What impact did the visit have on Opower and on you? And then also what was going on what, what was the act the macro environment like at the time?
2: Uh, I mean, it was like wow, what a day, right? I mean, it was unforgettable and uh, such a such a joy to have had that day and to have had that visit. Um, you know, from a business perspective, I think uh, it opened some of our customers' eyes. Like, oh, this O'Power, maybe we should take them a little more seriously if the president's popping by. But it wasn't a big business thing. It was a, you know, it was it was it was just a boost for us as a team, and it was it felt hugely. It just it was powerful. It was a powerful visit. At the time, there was a. It was sort of a second wave of the financial crisis had ended. There was the the bailout or the and the big, you know, all the TARP money, and a lot of it was directed towards clean tech, and it was critical for the administration to have some successes. Many people don't remember, they gave a ton of money to Tesla, which has worked out quite mm-hmm. well. There was a lot mm-hmm. more attention paid to the money that went to companies that didn't do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but so they were looking for, for successes, and we were happy to be a, an easy example of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at this time, Opower was growing really quickly. Uh, at one point, you were working with 93 utilities around the world, as you mentioned, uh, in countries all over the world. This is all happening by 2014. How did Opower's product and then the company culture change as you grow. So both curious about the product itself, and then you mentioned the culture and Alex's role in that.
2: Yes, yeah, so I'd say the culture didn't change. I mean, it feels different to be at a really small company and a big company, but you know, mm-hmm. the, the the tenets mm-hmm. of our culture were around being we were very mission driven. Um, we were very focused, you know, on on having an impact on the environment and measuring that. We were, and we we put a real priority on no greenwashing you know if it if we couldn't measure and say beyond a shadow of a doubt that it really had happened we didn't count it um and that was a big you know and then we had you know our other v- values around the you know typical business uh, it's you know f- f- good high growth um well-run startup you know values around transparency and collaboration and, and all these kinds of things and, and we had we just had a, an exceptional team um the diaspora of companies that have been founded from Opal, O alumni, as we call <laughs> them, is something I'm really proud of. So, the culture, you know, didn't change much. Sorry, you had you had. A, you had a, there was a second part of the question that you. Oh had, yeah,
1: uh, the product itself. Like you yeah. went from no code oh, to product, writing code really product. quickly. Yeah. To yeah, what what did the product yeah, look yeah. like as you started to scale?
2: I'd say we went through all the classic phases of software development the one of the biggest things is as the team grows you have to you know get much more disciplined about documentation and process and and communication flows and uh and how you plan and we did a lot we that we got better and better at that stuff um we went through a couple versions we had the classic re-architecture investment that went nowhere you know we tried to move a lot onto Hadoop which was this at the time, Mm -hmm. you know, the new big data uh, database. And it probably wasn't the right idea from the beginning. And then we aimed too high and we just never really got the returns on it. So we had all of our, you know, we had our serious stumbles. And then it kept evolving. And, you know, as we we grew into microservices architecture, as we got bigger. And then that's not on the technology side. In terms of product features, like taking it sort of above the hood, um, the business started with the home energy report. So and that was the thing that we sold smud. We will put a mailer out to your customers that essentially compares them with a three bar graph to their neighbors. And that'll motivate them to, and they have some tips and that'll motivate them. And where the company evolved from a product perspective was, first of all, we went online. So we built a robust web site So you don't have to get a paper mailer to get your results. Uh, and then the big places we innovated or advanced was, um, we became the single biggest repository of smart meter data in the country. Mm-hmm. So we had like 40 percent of all US energy data flowing through our servers every day. and then we started to do some really interesting analytics on that data. So we could do things like uh, regression analysis of your energy usage and we could I, we could tease out the part of your usage that came from your air conditioner mm-hmm. and we could say, hey, you know your your usage is good, but you know your AC loads actually 30 percent higher than average. You should look into that. here's some tips or your lighting is high. So those are some of the things that we did.
1: And was that, did people take action on it? Were you able to see like a measurable difference in behavior? And what
2: did that look like? Yes. I mean, our next versions of the report of the, of the suite, what we would see is that we were able to drive incrementally higher reductions in energy usage. So it was all small stuff in aggregate, right? So we would get like a one and a half percent average reduction across a million homes in a utility. And then as we rolled out these new features, we'd see that one and a half percent go up to two percent. Mm-hmm. But when you put it together, we had twenty plus million homes, we were actually providing as much energy savings that it was equivalent to powering to we had basically built a Hoover Dam of behavior change. <laughs> that's that's I love that. And that's awesome. That to me, that was the like, oh my God, we've yeah. done it, you know, It was one of the greatest public works projects of the last (laughs) century, and we've done it with, you know, behavioral science.
0: What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. AES imagines a future that is 100% carbon-free, and it's doing the work today to make that future a reality. AES is partnering with organizations to help them transition to new, smarter, and cleaner solutions, all while continuing to meet their energy needs and give them a competitive edge. Creating a greener future for everyone means working together globally across industries of every kind, from utilities in Hawaii to corporations in Virginia and at every stage of development. In the U.S. alone, AES's clean energy business is leveraging its 2.5 gigawatt portfolio of renewables and 12 gigawatt development pipeline to co-create and scale innovative solutions like solar, wind, energy storage, and hybrid clean technology portfolios to make the biggest impact to both your sustainability and business goals. AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy. Learn more about how you can join at AES.com. What It Takes is also supported by DLA Piper. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth and success as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper's team of technology sector lawyers supports clients with their legal needs across the globe. As demand for zero-carbon energy and other climate solutions grows, startups and established companies in the energy sector are looking to their lawyers to provide more than just legal knowledge. They're also seeking in-depth sector know-how and innovative solutions to the challenges they face. DLA Piper's energy lawyers deliver focused, creative sector advice wherever in the world clients need it. Being both global and local, DLA Piper understands the technical, geographical, commercial, and geopolitical factors that shape the energy sector. DLA Piper also has a podcast called Beyond the Curve, which features topics and guests from across the business spectrum. Its goal is to help businesses and communities navigate the challenges they face in today's world. You can find Beyond the Curve on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and find more about programs and publications at dlapiper.com. In
1: 2014, you Opower IPO'd for a billion dollars. What led to the decision to take the company public, and what was that milestone like for you?
2: Um, Yeah, so... I mean, going public felt like the just the right next step in the company's evolution. We had gotten big enough. It was, you know, an IPO is simultaneous is first and foremost a financing event. So we raised over a hundred million dollars, uh, and we raised it at a good valuation. So there was limited dilution to existing shareholders. It, of course, also then creates the potential for liquidity liquidity over time. And we felt ready for it. We felt mature enough to handle it. Uh, the actual event in the moment is super fun. I mean, it's wild. And and it's <laughs> it, it's because the banks and the exchanges put together a whole show. I mean, it's a circus. So, they give you all yeah. these plaques that are just contrived. Like the stock exchange <laughs> makes plaques. So you have plaques now. It was, so it was Do fun. Do you still have the plaques? Of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, um, so then, that was 2014, and then in 2016, you sold the company to Oracle for 532 million dollars. Um, how did the sale come about? What factors were you weighing and thinking about that sale?
2: Yeah. So. Oracle did a nice job publicizing the number 521 because they want to publicize the smallest number possible.
1: Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. So they
2: subtract the cash in the company. We actually sold for about $100 oh, million more than that. But in oh, any wow. case, yeah, it's just kind of funny. <laughs> I, I get that in occasionally. Um, but regardless, we sold to Oracle. In terms of how Oracle decided to buy us, it's always a multi-year journey. So it's an, another thing I advise entrepreneurs. If, if you want to sell your company, first of all, it's like, wanting to get hit by lightning. It's like, it's very hard to orchestrate. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest getting hit by lightning, but you know what I'm saying? You have, you know, things just have to be, the timing has to be there and it's, it's a rare event. Um But, uh but in addition to that, it just, it's a multi-year project to, to build a relationship so that a company can feel confident enough that they know you well enough to take that plunge. So we had been working with Oracle as a partner for a while. I, and I had been um, updating the senior leadership there for years Uh, And they actually took a earlier look a couple times, um, and got we got pretty close Mm. before that. And at the time, it it felt it felt like the right time for O power because it felt like we had done a lot of that we had set out to do, and the price felt appropriate for where what we were looking at going forward.
1: Were there moments that you thought O power might fail, and if so, what 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 did those look like?
2: Yeah. the period when I thought we might totally fail was early. So as a company mm-hmm. gets bigger, you, the, 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 fear, the failure fear changes from like bankruptcy to just like radically diminished value.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So the
2: early, I just think of two examples, two, two, not examples two the two most painful moments, uh, very early on, just before we, as we launched with SMUD, I got my hands on the actual data of these initial behavioral science tests that Professor Taldini had done, and that we had essentially based the entire bed of the company on. And it turned out that the data, while presented accurately in his uh, studies, of not impugning that research in any way, it was just very small data sets. And mm. so it really became clear to me how much noise there was in that in those results. And we, it wasn't okay with us to know that there was just going to be a result. It had to be a, a certain level, otherwise it wasn't economic. And so mm. I was just like sort of the floor fell out from under me. I was like, mm. oh my God, we have no idea if this is gonna work sufficiently well. And then the first few months of results came in and they we weren't changing behavior. Wow. And like we what is this company if that's not happening, right? Wow. And that was happening so,
1: that, that feeling for months you didn't yeah, you didn't have like the quarter. data you expected.
2: Jeez. Yeah. And then it started to tick up and we had that first month where it was like a two percent reduction and we were just like oh, my God, but is this noise, you know? Yeah, And yeah. then it, so the whole, that whole year was just uh, unsettling.
1: Um, <laughs> I but, can imagine. But it
2: worked. The other one was that we had a full-out, like, throw down, like, as intense of a comp- competitive fight as I've ever had with another company, which is Tom Siebel's company, C3. Mm. And they came into our market, and they, and he's, he is a dirty fighter Mm, Uh, mm. and he pulled every trick in the book, tried to undermine us and our key clients. And it was, that was an 18 month battle Mm. to win back uh, to secure that business. And we've ultimately, he's left, you know, he left the utility industry largely Mm. on account of that. Mm. um, And his C3 is apparently doing very well, but in other industries that was horrible in terms of its intensity.
1: Yeah. 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 Especially for it to, have lasted that long.
2: Yeah, and I'm not a, you know, that's not why I got into business. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not like a zero-sum fighter. I don't want to bloody somebody else's nose. I was, we, we were mission-driven. We were trying to build something big and new. He wasn't and isn't mission-driven. Mm. I don't know if he even knows what that phrase means. Mm. Um, and uh, and he was just out to kill. Mm. And it felt, mm. it was a, it was actually a very hardening experience because you realized mm. that you're kind of, felt like it was at war, like you're outside the wire he's going to do whatever it takes to win. It has nothing to do with any bigger picture. Yeah. It was a really, it was a very intense experience.
1: Yeah. Speaking of, of intense experiences and, and big decisions, what led to your decision to ultimately leave Oracle in 2017?
2: So that was actually kind of, that was an easy decision. We When we were acquired by Oracle, we were integrated into a division. Oracle had a utility division already. It was about the same size. So within six months, it was, I mean, from the time we got acquired, it was apparent. But within six months, we ended, we acted on this. We integrated the management teams. And there was already a CEO uh, f- for Oracle's utility division. And that wasn't, a, that's not a job that I would do well. Mm. So, and we knew that going in. Mm-hmm. So it was just a question of, how we how we implemented it,
1: yeah, how many people on the team at the time of the acquisition?
2: F- somewhere between five and six hundred, Wow, and all over the globe, which is it's real the real the real pain is how many time zones, <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> that's what you're feeling yep. um
1: so those those five to six hundred people were were representative of this generation of. Opower employees, including many software developers and others who who joined the company to make an impact in energy. And while the sale to Oracle was a huge success for investors and some employees, um, it, to some in the company, it sounds like there was this perception that it was going against Opower's mission. And some saw it as a sellout uh, to help Oracle's work with utilities while losing sight of the larger impact of O'Power's work, I'm curious: How do you respond to that critique? Is it accurate? Uh, what would you say to those who disagree with the trajectory of the acquisition?
2: Yeah, it wasn't a sellout. I've sold out my company before. I tell you honestly, uh, <laughs> when we sold EduSoft, you know, now that I look back, mm. we sold out. We were 25. Mm-hmm. You know, Jay and I were one year at, uh, into being legally able to drink when we started the company and three years later we had an offer that was going to net each of us millions of dollars and that company was like this when we were when we were sold you know we mm. the, the revenue tripled the next year after we were acquired mm. um and the company that bought us is a boston-based publisher houghton mifflin mismanaged the business and the whole Mifflin itself mm. was mismanaged and it's had its own issues and the vision we had was uh cut short none of that was true at opower you know if anything mm. you look we went public at 1.1 billion we were acquired for 600 and i think 20 million that's indicative of the fact that you know in a, from a financial perspective we had waited too long mm. uh, and the reason why is because we were so mission driven and we we wanted to ensure that we maximally achieved what we could with our with our climate change vision. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, you know, companies have they have life cycles and and products have market sizes. And we tried like crazy for a decade to, to introduce additional behavioral science based energy efficiency products. And we just the, the sum total of all of those products was not big enough to sustain significant growth and so the business had been pushed into utility customer service which isn't it which from our from our customers perspective is a direct adjacency from a mission perspective is like oil and water mm-hmm. um, but that had already happened and there wasn't really any changing it and as we looked forward we said look the efficiency business is mature the future is in utility customer service and that's really a better run by a company like oracle mm-hmm. and if you look today five years later almost five years later it is that's how it's panned out you know the the the, util, the efficiency business is about the same size as it was when we sold the company gotcha so and you know one other thing oh, i'd add yeah i mentioned this before you know one of the great things about selling a company at the right time is you unlock all these loyal and super talented employees um, to do new things and i look at the alumni now um uh, a, f- a friend and former employee who I was just texting with today has gone on to found a, uh, a baby toy company dedicated to using brain science in every single toy, and they're doing phenomenally well. Um, there's another startup that's working um, called In Class Today that works on uh, truancy reduction using behavioral science. Mm. There's another group that's founded a nonprofit working on reducing recidivism in prisons, mm. And it's just like the company that I'm deeply involved with now and that our former CMO is now the CEO of is going to try and be the, as you know, the Tesla of, of home uh, home heating.
1: This is Dandelion.
2: Uh, yeah, Dandelion Geothermal. And you've had Kathy mm-hmm. um, on, on your show. So, uh, you know, all of these companies have been unlocked by people moving on mm-hmm. to do other things.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, Given what you're doing now as far as being chairman uh, at Dandelion and uh, investing and you joined the board of NRDC, um, what do you see as your role in energy moving forward?
2: Yeah, I don't know if I have an overarching answer. I mean, I always have my eye out for where I think I can have a leveraged impact. And in both cases you know NRDC mm-hmm. and dandelion uh, I feel like I'm able to really do that and that's what that's what drives me and i I, mm-hmm. I, I think the mm-hmm. thing I learned at opower um, and it's the opportunity I have now is that i I get to see big ideas and that's the that's really my only mm. limiters I'm not interested in things that can't get huge they may not get huge, but I don't want to be involved in something that can't possibly get huge
1: um so as I mentioned earlier, you are married. You—I don't think I mentioned this—but you have two kids, a three-year-old and a seven-year-old. How did you balance being a partner, and a parent, and an entrepreneur all at the same time?
2: Debacle, debacle. <laughs> <laughs> There's no, there is no balance, uh, and my wife, you know, would say the same. Um, I was just consumed by Opower. Um, so I'm fortunate that my second son. Was born after I left Opower, so uh, he's. I was able to be a, finally a, a great husband uh, and and dad to him when he came. You know when he arrived, um, and my young my older son was only was only four uh, when that happened. So, for most for all of one of their lives and most of the other now already, I have been balanced. But starting a company is not a balanced activity. At least yeah. for me, I'll be. will That's that's my yeah. conclusion.
1: Last question before we move into and close with our high voltage round. In the mind of Dan Yates, what does the future of energy look like?
2: I mean, what I hope the future of energy looks like is just an acceleration of the trends we already see before us. Because it's all there. We don't need, you know, we don't need fusion reactors. We don't need a tripling Mm -hmm. in the efficiency of solar panels. We just need, uh, we need a political will and focus to do the things that are in front of us. Well that's that's what I hope it is
1: all right uh moving into our high voltage round quick questions with quick answers starting with if you were an animal what animal would you be and why
2: I would be uh, a frigate bird <laughs> do you know what frigate birds are no
1: but it sounds fun to say
2: the frigate bird is this un this extraordinary seabird that has the most incredible efficiency of flight uh, it barely moves its wings it's beautiful it uh, it's I would, that's what I'd be. You can just, they, they hover for hours.
1: There are people commenting in in the chat. You have fellow frigate bird fans out there.
2: (laughs) Friggin frigate bird.
1: (laughs) If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be?
2: Mm, I can have any skill that I want.
1: What I love about these questions is that they're intentionally (laughs) open-ended. So your interpretation (laughs) of the question is as interesting as your answer. So yes,
2: I'll go guitarist and Potter
1: Potter, like pottery.
2: Yeah. Huh? How come I've those? I that two? for a while. Very, very enjoyable. Very flow. Very in the flow.
1: I like it. What's the best investment you've ever made?
2: So I'm betting that the best investment I will have ever made is Dandelion Geothermal. Um, I really have nice. never been involved with the company. And this sounds like a plug, but it's honestly what I feel like. It's the th- uh, mm. I've never been involved with a business that I think could really be a ten billion dollar business. It just has like mm. a absolutely mm. unlimited unlimited potential so I put a bunch in and I put a bunch of my time in and we'll see Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I'm rooting for it
1: what is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe
2: uh I didn't I would maybe this is this satisfies the question I wish that I had known the power of mentors when Hmm. I was younger
1: Hmm. did you not have them or feel like you didn't have them
2: I didn't seek them out, and I mm-hmm. kind of spurned them when they appeared to me. And then mm. I ended up having accidental mentorship. And on reflection, I realized how I've realized how valuable that is. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I just wasn't open to being taught. I had to mm. do it all myself,
0: mm. and I
2: really wish mm-hmm. I'd had like a older mentor here and there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I when got to are them you late? Your, you got to them late. Yeah. Uh, what is your worst trait?
2: well i think i may have already hit it i i'm i i i see what's wrong which is also a strength but i can i can really i can really home in on weaknesses uh to a to a debilitating level
1: if you could change one thing about the world what would it be
2: i mean i would wave a wand and we would not have a climate change or and or a habitat destruction problem which i think we've doesn't get the headlines as quite as much but is equally the problem
1: finish these sentences for me companies fail because
2: either execution or not product market fit
1: if I could have done one thing differently I would have
2: Uh, I would have tried to find more balance
1: do you know what that would have looked like for people who are seeking that now uh, or struggling with that now
2: I mean literally it's just trying to find a way to have less of your brain cycles consumed by one thing.
1: Yeah. Uh, if the world knew me for one thing, it would be,
2: I hope if the world knows me for one thing, it's my dedication to, um, to, to climate issues. If the world knows me for one thing, maybe it's, um, my just, uh, ferocity when focused. (laughs)
1: Last two questions I'm most proud of.
2: I'm most proud of that 13 terawatt hours.
1: It's a pretty impressive stat. Last question or last sentence to finish. To build a successful company, what it takes is?
2: To build a successful company, what it takes is uh, a great founding team with, with great team dynamics um, and trust. And then a, a really a really solid focused idea in a market that has enough space for you to grow
1: well said I'm so used to at this point being in front of a live in-person audience and saying uh-huh. give a big round of applause for Dan Yates and even if everyone claps right now no one's <laughs> gonna hear it so I'm just gonna clap for you <laughs> um.
2: I'll take it I'll take it
1: oh man um That is the official end of our interview. i got a clap in the
2: comments. Virtual claps are roaring across the I love that. That's
1: so nice. (laughs) You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.f-u-n-d. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily
0: Kirsch. This is What It Takes.